What does the Bible's story say about racial diversity as a God-given gift? What does who we worship with say something about the gospel we believe? How does a clear sense of identity in Christ help us encounter people different to ourselves? And how can those with power use it faithfully? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Right Reverend Dr. Gully Francis Dechani. Bishop Gully is the Bishop of Loughborough in the Diocese of Leicester. And our question today is, how is a theology of racial diversity part of the good news today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Bishop Gully, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Bishop Gully, you're currently serving as Bishop of Loughborough. Tell us, what are the different roles in which you've served God before this present role? And what does this present role involve? Well, I was ordained oh, 20 plus years ago now in Southwark Diocese, where I served my title. I then went on to be an educational chaplain, where I had a dual role between the Royal Academy of Music, which was part of the University of London chaplaincy, and also St. Marylebone Church of England Secondary School. And the reason, only reason they were linked was that they sat opposite each other on the A40 on the Marylebone Road going into London. I only did that for a couple of years before we moved to Peterborough Diocese, where my husband began a parish post. I took a few years out. We had three small children at that stage. I had twins just after we arrived in Peterborough. So I took a few years out of full-time ministry. Well, I hadn't worked actually full-time since I'd had my first child in my curacy. Um, So I did some freelance work, writing, reading. And then I dipped my toe back in by doing a year-long research project at Northampton University in an effort to try and help them develop a more multi-faith chaplaincy team and then went on to take a part-time role, half-time post as curate training officer in Peterborough Diocese which I did for seven or eight years and before moving to my present post. So this was not a role I was looking for, it's not a role I was in the pipeline for, I hadn't travelled the conventional pathway to bring me to this point so it came really as a huge surprise and it all happened very quickly, really. But in an odd kind of sense, it, it made sense. And I could see how the different threads of my life were coming together, meaning that I felt I had something to offer in post. And so I've been Bishop of Loughborough now for just over two years. And it's a suffragan post. It's a fairly small contained diocese. So I work across the whole diocese along with the Bishop of Leicester. But I have various portfolios and responsibilities, which include being sponsoring bishops, a responsibility for vocations, including those exploring ordained ministry and seeing through to the end of curacy. I'm chair of trustees at Lawned Abbey, which is a retreat house, one of the few remaining retreat houses in the country now, a real gem. And I have responsibility for developing mission and ministry amongst black and Asian and minority ethnic people within Leicestershire. Some people think that that's a role that is a national role. There was a lot of publicity around at the time of my appointment, but actually it's particular to Leicester Diocese and various other responsibilities, which just go with being a bishop, I guess. It's with relation to that last bit of your brief and role and calling that we're chatting today, Bishop Gully, as we're thinking about theology and racial diversity. Thinking back in your life experience, what were your early experiences of of Christians engaging with the relationship between theology and racial diversity? 
my earliest experiences were, you know, they, they were subconscious. They weren't ones that I was thinking through, if you like, at the time. I come originally from Iran and I spent the first 14 years of my life there. I grew up as part of the very small, tiny Anglican community there. The church, the Anglican church in Iran had come about as a result of Western missionary work. But by the time I was born, um, really from the 1960s, there was a real attempt for the church to develop an indigenous identity as a Persian Christian presence. And of course, that raised all kinds of questions about Christian identity versus kind of national identity. So in Iran, social identity, in a sense, is coterminous with religious identity. To be a Persian is to be a Muslim. And so if you're not, immediately you're something slightly outside a slight outsider, as it were. So when I look back, it was always part of my upbringing that we never quite fitted as fully Persian and fully Christian. It was almost like you had to choose between the two. So my work now, for me, taps very much into those early experiences of what it means to be a Christian disciple, regardless of what your race and ethnicity might be. It'll have different expressions, if you like. But I think, for me, there are kind of fundamental questioning of the idea that to be Christian is to be Western, um, which is how a lot of people understand it. So I think it's always been part of my life in a sense. It's just that I now think about it more consciously and deeply than I did when I was younger. As you think about it more consciously, you know, obviously drawing on those earlier experiences, I wonder what the resources are for you. And I'm thinking, let's start with the biblical resources in terms of the Bible as a source of theological thinking. What are the resources you go to that really help you think through theology, identity, racial diversity, so that it takes us beyond the idea of, as you say, Christianity is just a Western uh, reality? I think um, for me, it's present within the whole vista of the Bible, in a sense, and it ties in the idea of racial diversity being at the heart of our understanding of faith, ties in with themes like generosity and hospitality and areas like that. So, you know, you you can start right at the beginning and look at the stories of creation, which seem to me to say something about God's love of diversity, God's kind of self-expression in the diversity of creation. Then right through to stories, for example, of, um, you know, the story of Abraham, I think it's Genesis 18, where Abraham is visited by God, in a sense, in the guise of three strangers whom he takes into his tent to show hospitality to. So there's something there of of God appearing in the guise of people who were other than Abraham. It then runs right through the Old Testament, doesn't it? The stories of um, Ruth and Naomi, stories of Esther, stories of King Cyrus. I mean, that takes me back to my Persian roots who wanted to allow space for Jewish people within his kingdom to have their own expressions of who they were, right through the poetry of Isaiah, the stories of Jonah, who's sent to Nineveh, where God has love and mercy on the people of Nineveh, despite kind of Jonah's instinct for self-preservation, as it were. And then, of course, into the New Testament, I mean, very, very profoundly in the stories of Jesus, who reached out to those who were considered not just strangers, but almost enemies. So going into Gentile territory, taking his mission well beyond the Jewish people. And then in the writings of Paul, I mean, classically, the texts like Galatians, you know, neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, and so on. And then right through to the vision of of the afterlife in Revelation, where all nations are brought together. So, I mean, for me, it's, you know, the, the story of Christianity is one of journey and migration and diversity, in a sense. 
it's very difficult to kind of separate them out. Can I take you back to one of those biblical pictures in that hugely impressive sweep of the biblical narrative? You pointed out from creation to new creation, that diversity is there and is God-given. And how significant is it that the nations are still there in Revelation 7, 8, 9, as, as yes, worshipping the one Christ, but the diversity is, has not been got rid of, even within this new creation? Well, for me, it seems fundamentally important that as soon as we limit the diversity, it feels to me almost like we're diminishing what the church ideally is designed and meant to be. So the greater the diversity, the more we see of what God intends for the church, I think. That's not to say there isn't something very powerful about being able to worship in your own tongue and, you know, within your own cultural expressions. I think there is something really profound there, but not at the expense of the effort to to learn from across the diversity from one another. So for me, it's a both and, I think, rather than an either or. So what you're saying is that there's a false dichotomy that can be drawn between unity and diversity. And actually you're saying that for all the unity that we celebrate in Christ, we mustn't forget the ongoing diversity. Yeah, I, I think I am absolutely saying that. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, with, with the Brexit referendum, and well, it's, it's ended now, we're, we're kind of in Brexit, aren't we now? But we were forced, um, Graham Tomlin, Bishop Graham Tomlin has written a fantastic little book on this. But what, what he suggests, and I absolutely agree with, is that um, we were forced to make a decision between two binary choices, either of national British identity or of looking outwards to a European and a global identity. And in being forced to choose, the country split itself. And actually, we need elements of both. We need absolutely an understanding of, uh, of what it is to be British and to have a British culture. To my mind, to my way of thinking, we also need a wider understanding of what it is to be a citizen of Europe and of the world. And it's the same, I think, for me with Christianity and indeed with all identity, that I have to know my roots and I have to know where I come from. I have to be able to make peace with my past. I have to know who I am in order to be able to contribute fully and in order to be able to be generous and inclusive and to learn from others. Because in the end... I continue to be formed through relationships and through learning from others. And so for me, it's a case of both and. I do want to have a clear sense of my own identity, but I want that to be an outward looking identity that draws others in and enables me to connect rather than separates me off. And if we take that through and sort of begin to connect it with the life of the church today... You'll have experienced worshiping communities as I have where that diversity, particularly in its racial expression, is really limited. Where is the church missing out by that being the case? It's something really difficult to achieve. We're trying to do it in Leicester Diocese by developing or trying to develop what we're calling intercultural worshiping communities, which is a deliberate attempt to create worshiping communities of people from all kinds of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds and languages because we believe that that is the fullest expression of the church and of the kingdom of God. But it is very difficult. I think our natural instinct is to be drawn to people like ourselves. Um, there's something called the Dunbar number, which is supposed to be um, the number of people any one person can be in easy relationship with, if you like. 
we have limited time in our life and our instinct is to be drawn towards people like ourselves. I'm reminded often of a phrase used by Pope Francis who spoke of trying to develop a culture of encounter whereby we kind of intentionally cross over the boundaries that keep us apart through something that he calls the conversion of the feet, which is a kind of deliberate picking yourself up and taking yourself into a place where you might not otherwise go and being enriched through that experience. So it requires not so much a generosity in terms of what you're willing to give, but actually in terms of how you're willing to receive from the other and how open you are to being transformed through that experience. Now, linguistic divisions, I think, complicate that. And I've not long ago come back from a visit to Ethiopia where the church there was absolutely clear that they're not interested in that. They want to grow churches and the easiest way to grow churches is by doing it on a tribal basis where people of different languages come together in different congregations. Now, I understand that might well be appropriate for them, and I certainly don't want to judge that, but I think our challenge here is the reverse, to see if actually we can model something completely different, which is bringing people who are diverse together in order to learn from one another and open oneself up to each other. I was struck what you said there in terms of actually when those communities take place and that encounter, that conversion of the feet happens, that's a really full expression of the gospel. That's the biblical picture from Revelation of, of the different tribes worshipping together. You say different tongues going on. And I remember when I was worshipping with 4,000 people from across the world in the Lausanne Congress in Cape Town in 2010, just my mind being blown about what it was to worship with so many racial identities, languages, gifts. And I thought the gospel suddenly got bigger for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with all of that. But there is, of course, also something very powerful about worshipping within your own language. So, so I know now I don't, I don't get the opportunity very often to worship in Persian. But when I do, there is something very powerful about that, connecting to your roots mm. and singing, particularly the singing of hymns in your own language is something very powerful. But then, of course, what we're learning, I think, in the Church of England now, or beginning to learn and experimenting with, is actually trying to find ways where we can sing together across different mm. languages using phonetic, uh, you know, phonetic writing or simple phrases that can be learnt and then coming in and out of a shared language versus sung separately. So, so again, it's the kind of both and. But yes, there is something very countercultural and powerful, I suppose, about bringing diversity together with an expression of unity at the heart of it. So our our identity, our shared identity is focused on Christ. And that, that's what gives us our shared identity, if you like. That's what brings us together. I remember you just saying that, Bishop Gully, a church in this diocese where they have the screen split in two and half the words are in English and half in Persian. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a great example of what you described. We talked about the fact that actually within the Church of England and within the church more widely in England, there's some real challenges here about how we develop into the cultural communities of worship and we need to name some of the unconscious bias and racism that goes on in churches whether that's conscious or not would you draw on the same theological resources for that enterprise or would you be looking at another set of theological resources to resource the fight for justice that we are particularly aware of in a post-Windrush generation I think we need additional resources, if I can put it that way. So I think we have to 
be open to engaging with proper training, unconscious bias training, understanding our psychology and and all of that. And again, the human kind of instinct to resist people who are different because it's unknown, because we're fearful, because we're narrow minded, all of those things. And I think, you know, racism is not the it doesn't belong to just one particular group. I think we all have these unconscious biases. And until we're kind of open to see it within ourselves, it's very difficult to overcome. But I I think we have a long way still to go in the church with that. And I, I see it from a particular angle, because I think I haven't experienced some of the racism that black people, for example, will describe. But I'm conscious that I, because of that, I don't quite fit into any group. So I can be invisible in a number of different groups, because I don't sound or look foreign enough. I don't quite fit into the BAME group in people's minds, neither do I fit into the white, English, British. So that's kind of an odd thing as well. And I think there are loads of people like this. You see, I, in my explorations over the years around the subject of identity and belonging, I have the sense that it's very possible as someone who is an outsider or a semi-outsider to find a place on the margins and then almost wallow in it because it can be quite comfortable actually to feel a little bit sorry for yourself and a little bit like an outsider and I, I've discovered over the years that actually lots of people feel like that for all kinds of different reasons. It might be to do with race and gender but it might be to do with any number of other things which has pushed people to the edges of society or to the edges of their families or to the edges of the groups that they're within. And my approach has been to try and find a place of belonging, which may be on the edges, it may not quite fit, but to feel secure and confident in that from which to try and reach out and make connections. Now, that's not to say there isn't racism in the church and in society that we absolutely have to encounter, but to belong, you also have to want to belong if that if that makes sense. So it's kind of a two-way thing. I think it's easy for those of us who feel slightly on the edges to push people away when they're trying to reach out because it can feel like it's patronising or it's not really felt, it's not genuine, when actually you've got to kind of meet part way. You've got to want to belong. And you've also got to be willing actually to name prejudice when you see it. And I think this is a challenge for the church that I don't that often see people standing up for others. And that's quite challenging. I think it's one thing, whether it's black people or whatever group you take, to be expected to kind of fight the battles by themselves. Actually, I think historically, where major changes have come about, it's often been because the groups who have more power or the individuals who have more power are willing to align themselves with those who have less power, get on board with them, and create the spaces or help create the spaces to give voice and and so on. So again, I think it's a reaching out and a both and rather than an either or. And I wonder if that encourages us to access those texts which show that use of power being done badly, which would be some of the kings in the Old Testament, but also some of that power being used well to speak for others, which is some of the prophetic literature who actually speak up for others who do not have a voice and actually gives them a voice. Absolutely, because power in itself, I think I want to suggest, is neither good or bad. It's how it's used, Yeah. yeah. And certainly for me, as I stepped into this role, 
one of the things I was very conscious of was it will probably give me a little bit more power and influence. How can I keep myself challenged to use that as as well as I can? And having stepped into the role, I realized that, yes, I do have more power and influence, but actually it's very easy to also be more fearful of using it because it's a little bit more public. There are expectations on all sides. So finding my voice to use it well in situations where there is power dynamics isn't always straightforward. It's challenging. And I constantly have to, you know, question myself about, am I using my voice well enough? What is it I'm frightened of when I don't speak out when I feel that I should? So I don't think it goes away the more influence you have. It just gets a bit more complicated. Sounds to me like that for you, coming back to the questions of identity of who you are and however you are within that power dynamic, wanting to belong and knowing who you are in Christ with your own story is a really important part of navigating that tough call. Yeah, it has been for me. That's really been the journey for me from a place on the boundaries to not so much a place in the centre, although some people might say that is exactly where I am now. It doesn't always feel like that. But yes, a place of confidence in who I am as a child of God and a desire for others to feel that same sense of confidence and an absolute certainty that we learn from one another, regardless of where we're sitting and and how much we belong or how much we're perceived to belong, because that's the other issue. There's one thing about what you feel and there's another thing about how you're perceived. So, yeah, it's, it's been an important part of the journey for me. You talked earlier about one of the key things, decisions we can make is to use that phrase from Pope Francis, the conversion of the feet, to want that encounter with somebody who may look different, may sound different, but who we believe can reveal to us fresh aspects of the gospel and what it means within our diversity to be united in Christ. Can you give us any kind of practical steps for those of us listening to this podcast about where we could seek those encounters and where that conversion of the feet could take place? Well, I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I I used to work with curates for seven or eight years in Peterborough Diocese. And I used to often say to the curates when we came together as a group that this is probably the last time as clergy in the Church of England that you will be absolutely required to come to a group where there are other clergy who you don't choose yourself. There is obviously chapter once you're, once you're ordained. And chapter is when clergy within a deanery get together, that's right. And uh... Absolutely, but you don't have to go to chapter if you don't want to. So I think one of the challenges again for us, particularly as clergy, but I think for many Christians as well, is that the temptation is to uh, mix primarily with those with whom we agree. Again, this kind of instinct to be drawn towards those who are like-minded. And so the church is made up of a whole series of echo chambers where like-minded people hear their own views reflected back at them. And so when we come out of those echo chambers and try to talk across the divisions and the boundaries that we create between ourselves, we suddenly find it hugely challenging, which is one of the difficulties that the church had in the debates leading up to the ordination of women, for example and then women in the Episcopate, and indeed now around the whole question of human sexuality. So again, in Lesser Diocese, we're trying to do some work on preempting the living in love and faith um, material that's due to come out soon to help the church to discuss areas of, of human sexuality. We're setting up in Lesser Diocese a um, living together well group 
bringing together diverse people with different views across the spectrum and hoping, we've, we've only so far met once, but hoping to be able to then model something for the wider diocese around how important it is to engage across these differences of opinion and crucially, actually, to build relationships. Because when you sit and you share a meal with someone and you share your story and your background and your life experience, you begin to get insights as to why the person has the views that they have. You begin to understand them. And as crucially, again, if you're open to recognizing the face of Christ in that person and to learning something, that generosity and being willing to receive, then all kinds of interesting things can happen. The problem is we shut ourselves off from it because we're fearful, because we want to stick with people who are like ourselves and affirm the views that we have. And of course, whilst we can't do it within the church, we're not modeling it for the wider world either. So the very gift that we should be offering to the wider world we struggle to live out within our own Christian community. You've articulated powerfully the theological vision for diversity as a gift, both from creation to new creation and its potential for us in the church for racial diversity to be just one way in which we recognise the gospel in practice of our union with Christ across our diversity. What's this felt like for you as a disciple of Christ? You talked a little bit about what it means for you as a bishop to be in that space. How does this continue to play out for you about as a disciple of Christ and what it means for your walk with the Lord? Um, well, it continues to be challenging, if I'm, if I'm very honest, because I think everything that I've said about the importance of creating a culture of encounter, of trying to cross those divisions and those boundaries and wanting to be generous in receiving as well as giving, those are just as difficult for me and just as challenging for me as I see them being challenging for other people. You know, I continue to reflect enormously on, on these themes and of how I can live them out more meaningfully in my own life, as well as preach and speak about them. And so the vision that I and others have for what we want to develop in Lesser Diocese will only begin if we each inhabit this for ourselves. And I often say to people when I speak, you know, about transformation and changing the world and all that, we can't do any of that until we can just transform first ourselves, but actually then the little bit of the world that we inhabit. So, yeah, it, re it remains challenging for me, but it also remains a, a vision that I, you know, I, I believe in and, and I'm committed to. And I think I'm on a journey along with other people and along with the whole church. I, I just hope that after years and years and years, of talking about this and never really getting very far, that now there is a different kind of intensity. There is still an awful lot of pain and hurt around for a lot of BAME people. I, I'm very conscious of that and I see it a lot around the diocese. And that pain has to be heard and it has to be shared before it can be transformed. Well, you've taken us on that journey today in a very significant way. Bishop Gurley, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>